after a summer series on forgiveness and reconciliation, we, we move back to our series on 1 Peter. Uh, now, before we dive back into these specific verses that were read out just now, let's remind ourselves about the big picture of the letter of 1 Peter. Now, I'm calling this series Standing Firm, Finding Joy. That's the theme of 1 Peter, Standing Firm, Finding Joy. You see, Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering for their faith, and he knows that suffering, no matter what the circumstances, has two different effects on people. Some people in the face of suffering become bitter and twisted and embittered. And other people yet who face similar sort of suffering come out strengthened, encouraged, more caring for other people than before their suffering. And so Peter, as he writes this letter, knowing that suffering can cause us to go either way, wants us to go in the way that leads us to be more resilient, to be stronger, to be more caring for people. And not only that, but as we follow in the footsteps of Christ, who suffered for us, to find great joy. Standing firm, finding joy. That's the theme of the letter 1 Peter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will show us Christ in a better, more lovely way. May we hear your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a void in the depth that cries out to be filled. There's an ache that needs to be numbed, a fracture that needs to be bound, a scar that needs to be healed. And in an attempt to fill this void or numb the pain, many pursue pleasure or wealth or beauty. However, for the few that climb and claw and strive to have it all, or have it all handed on a plate, living the dream can often fall sadly short. For Ernest Hemingway, he pursued pleasure. As a young man, he sipped champagne in Paris. He was well known for his big game hunts in Africa. And of course, he became internationally famous as a writer. However, at the age of 61, having achieved it all, wine, woman, song, money, fame and success, Hemingway decided to commit suicide, to end his life, and he left a note. Unfortunately, the note has a swear word that I can't say. You'll have to fill in the gap. But he wrote, life is one expletive thing after another. Yes, some pursue pleasure to fill the void. Now, others pursue wealth. Lee Lacoca was a legendary and hugely successful car maker and was on top of his game when he wrote this. Here I am in the twilight years of my life, still wondering what it's all about. I can tell you this, fame and fortune is for the birds. Yes, some pursue wealth to fill the void. And what a beauty. Actress and model Hayley Berry once commented on in an interview like this. Beauty, let me tell you something. Being thought of as beautiful woman has spared me nothing in life, has spared me no heartache, no trouble. Love has been difficult. Beauty is essentially meaningless and it's never permanent. I can't believe the excess people go to to be more beautiful. Worse, they still have the hole in their soul that led them to change themselves to begin with. 
a hole in their soul. Isn't that a deep insight, a meaningful insight, a troubling insight into the human condition? But into this void, into this emptiness, into this quiet despair, the Bible speaks great words of hope. And so we listen to these words from 1 Peter 1.18, which lays out this void that we all suffer from. We see in 1 Peter, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors. And here Peter describes the void that I have been talking about. For though it may be experienced in different ways, each person at one level or another knows what an empty way of life looks like. And though we try and fill this void with silver or gold, with wealth or pleasure, fame or success, these all seem just out of reach or when finally grasped, turn to dust in our hands. However, in the face of all this, we have good news, wonderful news and a great hope for the words in the Bible speak a promise that we need never be empty again, that we can be empty no more. How so? How can we be filled? How can we leave our empty way of life? And these words in 1 Peter 1.19 tell us, you were rescued from this empty way of life. How? And we see this in verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. And so here in the Bible, we have no glib answer. We have no three-step plan to peace and contentment. We have an answer that is worthy of us diving in deeply to God's word to understand how we can fill this void that we all feel. For the good news of the gospel is that we can all be rescued from this empty way of life that was handed down to us from our ancestors. And this is not just for the rich or the famous. It's just not for those who have silver or gold. It is not just for those who have beauty and influence. No, this rescue from our empty way of life is opened all through the blood of Jesus. Now, the idea of the blood of Jesus is difficult for us moderns to grasp, but not so for, say, people that are in India today. Uh, let me describe an observation that I made when I, was on, when I was in India in 2019 on a mission trip with a good friend of mine. And we were in the province of Andhra Pradesh, and we'd been doing some work with some evangelists and missionaries and pastors that were working in the hill country. And so we were moving from one venue to another, and we were going through this bustling town in a four-wheel drive, and the streets were packed with people, and we, we, were, we were driving at crawling pace, really. And then I noticed out the window two teenage lads leading a goat. And I'd seen that before, teenage lads with more goats, but not with one goat. And this goat had garlands around its neck and even some paint on it. So I asked a driver what was happening, and he was saying the two lads were taking that goat to the local Hindu temple to sacrifice it. You see, in India, when 80% of the people are Hindus, then this whole idea of blood sacrifice, it, you see it in the street. Even those 20% of folk who aren't Hindus and don't 
offer blood sacrifices. They understand what that means in a way that we in the West have no idea about, do we? Because we don't, when we're in pack and save car parks, seeing a couple of people leading a goat down to the local temple to be sacrificed. So for us, we have to spend a bit of extra time trying to understand what it was like when blood sacrifice was common. And we have to go back to the Old Testament. And we'll go back to those days when God's people were slaves in Egypt to Pharaoh. And back then, if we remember the story, we have Moses. And when Moses spoke, God performed signs and wonders. And the last sign, the tenth wonder, was the death of the firstborn from every household. Every firstborn, human or animal, was going to die that night, except except for those households who took a lamb, a lamb without blemish and defect, and placed the blood of that lamb on their door frames, on their lintels. And those people who put the blood of the lamb on their on the lintel, who sheltered under the blood of the lamb, were rescued from death. The angel of death passed over that house as the family sheltered under the blood of the Passover lamb. And so that was the first Passover. And all of those who shouted under the blood escaped judgment. They were set free. They were slaves in Israel, but from Passover evening, the next day they were set free and they were given a wonderful promise, the promise of a land of milk and honey where they would find peace and rest and would have no enemies. And so that's what Passover is all about. Passover is all about escaping God's judgment, being set free from slavery and the promise of a wonderful future. Now, all of this would have been a brief footnote in history if it were not for 1,500 years later, when a true and a better Passover lamb came, one to whom John the Baptist would point out in the crowd and say, Behold, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And who was John pointing to on that day? He was pointing to Jesus, who was none other than God's own Son, fully man and fully God, who showed us the way to the Father because he was the way to the Father. For, Hebrews 12, 2, For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of of the throne of God. And why did Christ endure the cross? Because there was no other way. There was no other way for us to be put right with God. You see, no other religion gets us right with God because if a other religion did get us right with God, Christ would never had to have died. No spiritual practice of prayer or fasting or worship, whatever you like to say, no other spiritual practice can put us right with God, except those that are focused on Jesus. And that is because on the cross, Christ became our Passover lamb. For just like at the very first Passover lamb, whoever shelters under the blood of Jesus, the spilt blood, does three things. Whoever shelters under the blood of Jesus escapes judgment, is set free, and has a promise of a wonderful future. Let's look briefly at each of these three. 
So because Christ is our Passover lamb, when we shelter under his blood, we escape judgment. Since the fall, since Adam and Eve were thrown out of garden, the default, the factory setting for every person, for every human, has been hostility towards God. Indeed, we are God's enemies. And this animosity towards God sees us under judgment, the judgment of death. However, since before the creation of the world, it was God's plan to send Jesus to put things right. And Romans chapter 5, verse 9 shows us how we escape judgment. Romans 5, 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? See, notice there the connection between the blood of Jesus and being saved from God's wrath, from his judgment. And how does this work? Well, our guilty judgment against us puts us under the sentence of death and we must play with our life. We must pay with our blood and eternal separation from God. However, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and gave his blood instead of yours and mine. He has paid the penalty. He has paid for our death by his blood. And that means that our conviction, our guilty conviction, and our sentence of death has been cancelled. And we are now justified before God. What does justified mean? Well, I always remember it like this. Justified means just as if I had never sinned. That's what justified means. It means that I can stand before God just as if I had never sinned as I look to Jesus. And all Christians are justified because of the blood of Jesus. And that is why we escape the judgment that we so desperately deserve. So that's the first benefit of the blood of Jesus that he won on the cross for us. We escape judgment. But he also set us free. Just as the Israelites were slaves to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, in a more real way, we are slaves to sin and death. We're slaves to sin and death. However, because Christ died for us, because of his blood, we are set free from these cruel slave masters. Sin and death have no power over us. We see this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. This is talking about Jesus. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, this is why our empty lives become full of the goodness of God, because Christ loved us, and then his blood sets us free from slavery to sin and death. Isn't that wonderful? Because of Christ and what he's done, we are loved, accepted, and forgiven. Dearly loved daughters and sons of the Most High God. So those are the first two benefits of the blood of Christ. Notice how that empty void in our life has been filled. It's been filled because we do not have that dread inside of judgment, and we have that freedom from sin and death. But that void is also filled because we have a wonderful, wonderful future. Listen to Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Jesus said to them, 
Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Now these are hard words of Jesus. In fact, after Jesus finished saying these words, a whole bunch of his followers left him. And Jesus said to his disciples, are you going to leave me as well? And Peter says, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But what Jesus is talking about here alludes, of course, to communion, where we eat the bread and drink the cup. But there's also that wonderful promise of the future tied with the blood of Jesus, isn't it? Because of the blood of Jesus, that void is gone because we have life in us, eternal life, abundant life, everlasting life that comes in when we believe in Jesus in part and will be experienced by us in all fullness when Jesus comes again. And you'll see that I will raise him up in the last day. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul paints the picture of Christ's return and there's this picture of Jesus coming up from the clouds, coming down to earth. And then the Bible tells us that first the Christians that have died, they will rise from the grave and they will meet Jesus there. He will raise them up. And then the Bible tells us that those Christians who are alive at that time will also be raised up and will meet Jesus in the clouds. And then we will accompany him as a victorious king comes into a city to celebrate his victory. You can read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But you see the promise there, isn't it? This void that we have, crying out for life. When we accept Jesus, that void is filled with his life as the Spirit comes into us. This eternal life that we are receiving day by day in part and will receive in all fullness in the future. And this is the good news of the gospel, isn't it? Because of the blood of Christ, we escape judgment. We are justified. We are set free from sin. And we have a wonderful future which we are experiencing in part now in all fullness in the future. And this brings us to a place where our faith and hope rest solidly in God. And if we go back to our passage in 1 Peter, we see this in verse 21. Through Christ you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are where? Are our faith and hope in ourselves? No. Are our faith and hope in our ability to do the right thing, to go to church every Sunday and to pray and read the Bible? No, that's not where our faith and hope lie. Our faith and hope lie in God, our Heavenly Father, who loved us before we were anywhere near right with him and sent his Son to shed his blood for us. Now, some of you here might be saying this is all a rather academic, Douglas. <laughs> This is a little bit theoretical. Earlier we saw three empty lives, Hemingway, Lakoko, and Haley Berry. We saw their empty lives. Why don't you show me someone who's made that transition? Show me someone who used to have an empty way of life but now has a life filled with Christ. Well, let me introduce you to Joel. Before I do that, show you that video clip of Joel, a brief background. Joel is English. He has a broad accent. So you'll have to listen a bit carefully. He grew up on a council estate. For those people not aware, that's a little bit like our, our state housing suburbs. So he's come from a difficult background. However, 
His parents were Christian, and he grew up in a church, but he long rejected anything to do with Christ and Christianity in the church. So let's pick up his story as he shares how he moved from an empty way of life to a life that had Christ living in him. I'm Joel. Uh, I'm from Sheffield, born and bred here, and I am married and have a little boy called Zach, and I live on the Manor Council Estate. Before I was a Christian, life was um, very different. It was, uh, I very much chased after the things of the world, what the world perceived to be kind of the answers for satisfaction and happiness. So for me, they kind of played out in, in relationships. I looked for satisfaction through relationships with, with women, whether that be kind of having a relationship with a girlfriend or kind of one night stands. Um, took a lot of drugs, uh, abused alcohol. Um, and kind of generally just chased after money. Uh, I liked expensive designer clothes, I liked to look good. So I do remember another night actually, another night out when uh, I went out clubbing, uh, got home around 4am and uh, I was steaming drunk. Um, I'd gotten with a girl in, uh, at the nightclub and I remember getting into my bedroom, shutting my door, turning my lights off and I just felt lost and I just broke down uncontrollably and sobbed like a baby and that was really the start of what seemed kind of, they weren't answering the questions for me anymore, they weren't serving the purpose that I wanted them to serve anymore. Um, yeah, that was, that was a real kind of stark point for me. When I met uh, my girlfriend, um, about six months into our relationship, her mum very suddenly died. Um, my girlfriend was from a Muslim home and her mum was a, a, a devout Muslim. Uh, and because of the death of her mother, she started to kind of ask the bigger questions of life, what's the point in life, etc. And her initial kind of response was to turn to the Quran, because that was where her mum would have found the answers. Um, but actually through reading that, um, she found that it didn't answer the questions sufficiently the way that she wanted them answered. And her knowing my background, she kind of started to ask me the questions, what the Bible would say, what Christians would say. And I would try and answer the questions as well as I could from my knowledge from a teenager, but anything else I'd kind of told her to go speak to my dad and, and, and my family about. And then um, probably four or five months after her mum had died, we went on a big family holiday. Um, and we were walking around the grounds um, of the big house that we stayed in on the last night and, and she turned to me and said to me, there's something different about your family. I can't put my finger on it, what is it? And I said that they would say that it was, it was Jesus, that because he was king of their life, um, they found their identity in him, um, <clears throat> the problems that they faced and the suffering that they faced had meaning um, and it had hope, more importantly. Um, Anyway, so we came home from that holiday and um, probably for the next two or three weeks we, I started to read the Bible quietly, wasn't telling anyone about it, I didn't want people in my family to kind of get too excited about the prospect. Um, and daily we would debate kind of Christianity and Islam etc and more and more we were becoming convinced about the person of Jesus and, and who he was and that he was actually a man who came to earth and was the son of God. And uh, I remember coming home from work on, on a Tuesday evening uh, and I sat down with uh, my fiancé at the time 
and said to her, you know, we clearly believe uh, what the Bible says now, um, so let's do something about it. And she turned to me and said, well, actually, about two hours ago, uh, I read a prayer in the back of a book by a guy called Vaughan Roberts, and I gave my life to Jesus. And uh, thanks for waiting, but, you know, she didn't. So. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, I sat down with her there and then, and I gave my life to Jesus and just asked him to be king of my life and lord of my life. Isn't it a wonderful story? And it was the emptiness of his life. He said that, you know, he was pursuing pleasure, and for him that meant drugs and playing football with his mates, you know, and going to the pub. But in the face of death, the emptiness, the void in his life became clear to him, and he became open to God's hand in his life. And that void, that emptiness that became clear at the death of a loved one, when he invited Christ in, that void became full and complete. If we had time, I'd show the rest of his testimony. We talked that it, you know, it was such a struggle at the beginning, um, letting go of those past habits of drugs and, and various other things. But he made it. Him and his wife made it as they turned to Christ. So there's an example Example of someone who has moved from an empty way of life to a full way of life. And I'm sure that there is many believers here in this room we could tell you in our own way how we have moved from an empty way of life to a full way of life. Let me finish with this quote from Blaise Pascal, the great French mathematician, philosopher, and awesome believer in Jesus. He wrote this. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every person. And this has implications. For if we continue in our empty way of life, a life devoid of Christ, then when troubles and difficulties come, we are more likely to be crushed, hardened, and embittered. However, when we invite Christ to fill that Jesus-shaped hole in our lives, when trials and tribulations and suffering come our way, and they will, we will not only be able to stand firm, but we will also to do so while finding great joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have broken into our empty way of life, shown us Jesus and given us new life. Help us to never take it for granted. Help us to lean into your goodness and your grace. Help us to work out our faith and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We pray through his name. Amen. Amen.